that I want to talk to us about over the next seven weeks is, do we believe in the sovereignty of God? Do we believe that God is, the, the, the doctrine of sovereignty is that God is all-powerful and is in all control? Do we believe that? I mean, every piece of God's sovereignty. See, God it can't be sovereign over all things and not sovereign over and not be sovereign over a few things. Amen. He either is in control and he's all powerful, or he's not. And so Daniel's going to walk us through what does it look like to live under the sovereign reign of God, and how do we do that? How do we take this book and apply it? To our lives, how do we apply God's sovereignty to us, Powell's Chapel? It's by no uh, happenstance, by no coincidence, that we'd be here this morning with John's last day and now talk about God's sovereignty. That was not planned. I had this book picked out for months and months and months before John came to me and said, Hey, I feel like God's calling me somewhere. That's God's sovereignty on his life. God knew at the beginning of time that we'd be here on this day with John, celebrating John and all that God has done in John and through John here at Powell's Chapel. So this morning, the question that must be answered is this, do you and I believe in the sovereignty of God? And we're going to look at five things, four things in that idea and how that plays out in our lives. And so I'll kind of read some, teach some, read some, teach some just because of the narrative it's a long passage and that's why we didn't stand and read all of it it's too long of a passage to do that way but i want to look at man's purposes versus god's purposes that's where we're going to start in the first two verses it says this god's going to come out of the book of daniel and start with god's sovereignty right out of the gate let me read the first two verses and talk about man's purpose versus god's purpose In the third year, the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. That's God's people. you got to understand that here's God's people. That's the king over God's people. That's who Judah is. It's God's people. And so here's this king that's over God's people. That God placed there. It says this. We know this king, King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, that was the fierce enemy of God's people. The Babylonians hated the Israelites. You, you read throughout the Old Testament over and over, the Babylonians, there's three different times. We'll see this the first time the Babylonians took over Israelites. They hated them. They were their fierce enemies. And this is the first of the three events that the Babylonians captured Israel. Israel, all Israel is, is just the people that go into slavery. God redeems them. They rebel against God. God sends condemnation. That condemnation is judgment. The judgment is back in the slavery. They cry out to God. That's the story of the Old Testament. God's people being brought out of exile, go into disobedience, brought back into slavery, out of slavery. If you want to know the the context of the Old Testament, that's it. That's you and I, though, too. So it says this. King Nebuchadnezzar, King of Babylon came to Jerusalem, God's people again, and besieged it. You see, the first point is this, and the the, the main point is this, man's purpose 
First, God's purpose. You see, the first thing in verse 1 is man's purpose. You see, here's this wicked king that wanted to have all the power and all the control and take more and more and more. And so he sought out to take God's people into captivity. And he won. And so often, that's what's going to happen to us. That it's going to look like the people are going to reign supreme and control over things. It happens in our day and age. Like it happens for us. How do we sit here and we have such a fierce enemy of ISIS? And if you're with me, you've got to think, how is this happening? How do all this evil happen to us? Man has their own agenda, amen? We talked about it last week. You may be at your workplace and your boss has his own agenda. And you're just a pawn in his game to get a means to an end. See, ungodly people always have selfish desires. And godly people often have selfish desires. So man always has a purpose. And man's ultimate purpose outside of the will of God is to become God. Is that not what Satan said to Adam and Eve in the garden? And so man here, we're going to see, you'll see it throughout the Old Testament, particularly in this story, is men trying to become like God. If you want to boil that first verse down, it can be boiled down to this. Here's King Nebuchadnezzar, and what does he want to do? He wants to become God. That's man's purpose. And yet, what does God's purpose say in verse 2? Read it with me. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand and some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them into the land of Shriner, the house of his gods, and placed the vessels in its treasury of the gold. Circle these two words in your Bible straight out of the gate. And what does it say in verse 2? And the Lord gave. You see, God had a purpose over man's purpose. You see, it may have looked like on the outside that King Nebuchadnezzar's purpose became truer than God's purpose. But yet, in verse 2, it tells us, no, 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 God had the purpose. And the purpose of God was that King Nebuchadnezzar would be used by God to bring God's people into captivity. Let's not forget this passage here, this verse here, because we've got to know coming out of verse 2, that's where we're at in the rest of the book. God had a plan for God's people. That's why we named the series Daniel, the sovereignty of God. God's going to have a plan for Daniel's life. God's going to have a plan, these other three characters in the story, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God had a plan for these four men. And we're going to see it play out in all the way to chapter 6 and how chapter 6 ends. So it's a spoiler alert. But do you want to know why God brought the people of God into captivity and made Daniel into captivity and the people around him, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, into captivity? It was for this reason, I believe. It's right after 
Daniel gets pulled out of the lion's den and this is what the king says. It's a different king. Uh, king Nebuchadnezzar is gone. There's a new king in place. And he says this, I will make a decree that all of my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. You see, God had a purpose and a plan and that purpose and plan took six chapters to be fulfilled. Now, it was being fulfilled along the way. But at the very end of the narrative of Daniel, the king that was placed there by God now makes a declaration to all the people that all the people will what? Praise God. And so we get to chapter 1, and it looks like, oh no, doomsday. Oh no, here's the people of God being brought back into captivity. What is God going to do? God looks very absent. Don't you think the people of God, when they saw the king Nebuchadnezzar take over Jerusalem, they had a pretty cruddy day. They were not rejoicing that Nebuchadnezzar came and besieged them, took them back into captivity. But yet God had a purpose. Because God is what? Sovereign. Which means he is all-powerful. He's in complete control. Do we believe that to be true, Powell's Chapel, this morning? About Powell's Chapel this morning. That God has a purpose for us. You see, even with all that's going on in our midst, that it may look like man's purposes are going to reign supreme, even here in our church. Oh, no, no. God allowed those things to happen. And so we can sit and we can grumble and we can complain and we can have great fear and great trembling, but we must come back to verse 2. Oh, no, no. God is in control. Powell's Chapel. Do we believe that? I don't know all the reasons that God brings people into captivity, but I do believe the ultimate reason is for His glory. Do you believe that? As you sit here today, and it looks like man is in ultimate control over you, it may be because God has given them control over you so that you will fall on your face before God and give Him all the glory. Is that true for you? Is it true for me? You see, God's purposes will always be fulfilled. Turn to Isaiah chapter 39. You see, this verse, verse 1, is the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 39. Behold, the days are coming. This is what the prophet Isaiah says. When all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up to this day shall be carried where? To Babylon. This is a fulfillment of Isaiah. Isaiah spoke this years before it happened. Why? Because God had a plan. Because God is sovereign and it says hey all that you've done it doesn't matter because God's going to make a plan and you're going to be driven into captivity into Babylon nothing shall be left says who the Lord it doesn't say says Nebuchadnezzar doesn't say Daniel it doesn't say Isaiah it says who all this is going to happen because the Lord says it's going to happen And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away. Sound like Daniel? 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of Babylon. Is that not the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 1? You see, man may look like it has his purpose, but God is sovereign over all things. That means everything. All in the Greek means all. It means everything. And so if God's sovereign control of everything, He's sovereign control of all of the salvation that happens that's going to happen to God's people. Which leads us to this next point. It goes back to what is man's purposes. The purpose of man, we can be, be found in verses 3 through 7. It's man's purpose, ultimate purpose, is brainwash. That's what happens in verses 3 through 7. I'll, I'll read that. So here's the people of God. They've been brought into the palace of Babylon. It says this, Then the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, commanded Azarephes, that's his chief, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel both of the royal family and nobility, the youth without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to, to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So here is the people that God has brought into exile, into captivity, excuse me, and he says, the king says, hey, I want the cream of the crop. So here's Daniel Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're the cream of the crop. They are from the royal family of Judah. They're not the street peasants. These are the best of the best of the best. That's who the king wants. I want the best of the best of the best. Then it says this, the king assigned them a daily portion of the king's food to eat and wine that they drank. And they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among those were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, the, the, from the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them these names. Daniel shall be called Belshazzar. Hananiah shall be called Shadrach. Mishael shall be called Shadrach. Azariah shall be called Abednego. And so here's what we see, four things. What man wants to do. The first thing is this. We see what in verse 3. Then the king commanded the chief eunuch to bring some of the people of Israel and do what? Bringing them into his palace. The first thing man is going to do is exactly what happened in the garden. The first thing that always is going to happen with man is going to create isolation. You see that. He's taking these men out of their families and bringing them in and taking them away from their families. Isolation. You see, if you can get isolated from other people that know you and are known by you and you think like them, then the chances of your brainwash is going to increase. That's what happens with prisoners of war. You take a man, you take them out of their, uh, out of their army, and you put them in a, a solitary confinement so they go, they go crazy. You put a man in isolation for a long time, they go cuckoo in the cuckoo's nest. So he, the king, thought, hey, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to start. I'm going to take them out of their family and I'm going to bring them into isolation. The next thing is this. He wants to create compromise. 
Right? Verse 5. Man is always going to put us in compromising situations. And the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king was to eat and the wine that they were to drink. Now this is the best of the best of the best. This ain't Taco Bell. This ain't Mickey D's. This is five guys at the table. Right, and so the king knows, I'm going to bring them into isolation. In isolation, I'm going to then put things before them that they're going to adore. That's exactly what happened where? In the garden. What happened? They, the, the serpent isolated them. Did God really say that? That was the isolation piece. And then what did he do? He took the best of the best of the best and put it in front of them. And that's what man does. Man's going to put you and I in compromising positions. What will we do when we face comp- compromising things? You see, man's always going to go after the heart and after comfort. That's, what, that's, what, that's the great war between God and Satan. The heart. You get to the heart quickest through comfort. The third thing is this. We'll go back to chapter verse four. Indoctrination. Verse four. He says this, this is the, the youth are without blemish of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, and competent and to stand before the king. And what's the king going to do? He's going to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. He's going to indoctrinate them with false truth. That's what's so scary about our university system. We have so many students grow up in great homes and go to great churches, then they get to college, and then what happens? They're hit with the world, and what the world has to offer and what the world has to teach is completely contrary to the truths of God. That's why 80% of all uh, high school students that have walked with the Lord fall away from the Lord in college. 80%. It's not good stats. But it happens through indoctrination. It happens slowly. You just give students enough facts and without the truth, that's how brainwash happens. Indoctrination. I think probably for us and our culture, even outside the university system, uh, media does that. Uh, Jenny and I went the other evening. We went to see Beauty and the Beast. Now, there's just a hidden, subtle message throughout the whole movie. It wasn't blatant. I kept thinking to myself, Tennyson's going to watch this movie. She's going to have no idea the subtleties. But she's going to grow up, and then there's going to be the next movie. Those subtleties are going to begin to gain prominence in her brain. And so she's going to be hearing from me. She's going to be hearing from Jenny. She's going to be hearing from the church, and yet she's going to be faced with the world. The saddest part is the world has a, a way louder voice than I do. Has that not what happened to us? Here in America, we began to be indoctrinated by the world. 
Ah, that's not that bad. How are we at where we're at? It's through indoctrination of the media, in my opinion. You just think in the last 25 years. What's been on TV. I mean, my greatest time growing up was TGIF. You know, there's five TV shows on Friday night. You just go grab some popcorn. You eat a sloppy joe and tater tots and sit down and watch some TV. And they were clean, wholesome shows. But you go turn on TV on a Friday night now during the same hour, and God forbid you let your kids watch those shows. But yet, we are. I was watching a cartoon with Tennyson the other day, and uh, I, I probably, probably it has cats in it, so I probably should have turned it off to begin with. Uh, it's called uh, Little, Little Pet Shop or something like that. Is that right, Jenny? Little Pet Shop? I don't know. Oh, Little is Pet Shop. Little Pets of Shops. I don't know. Anyway, I was sitting there watching with her and just kept watching it. I thought to myself, man, the disrespect of these cartoons to parent figures. The disrespect to one another. And yet Tennyson just watching it and picking up all the subtleties. That's what happened to, that's what the king was trying to do to Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The last thing that we see in the text is this confusion. So we have isolation, indoctrination, compromise, and the last is confusion. We see this in verse 6 and 7. He brings the people, these four young men, into his palace. He begins to um, isolate them, begins to put them uh, and indoctrinate them with his teaching. He puts compromising, they're in a, a compromising situation. And then he just straight out confuses them. How so? Verse 6, and among them was Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, from the, from the tribe of Judah. And then they changed their names. Now, that might not seem like a big deal. But if we look at the text and what these four men and their four names means, it means this. These are their God-given names. These are their Jewish names. These are their ancestors. These are who they are. Daniel means this. El, God, is my judge. So every time that Daniel's hearing his name called to him, he's about 15, 16 years old at this point in the story. Every time he had heard his name, he heard, God is my judge. God is my judge. Every time that Hananiah heard his name, he heard this, Yahweh, God has been gracious. So every time that boy's name has been called, God is gracious. God is gracious. Shell means this. Who is what? Who is what God is? Just a reminder of who God is. And the last one is this. Yahweh has helped. So these four boys for about 16, 17 years years of their life, every time they heard their name, they heard the truths of who God was. And every time they heard each other's names, they heard the truths of God. And every time they called to one another, they were calling out the truths of God. You see, in the Old Testament, in the Jewish culture, a name was more than a name. It meant something. 
It had great value. It had great stock. It held something. And so these boys held the truths of who God was and their namesake. And what does the king do? He changes their names to create confusions. And what does he call them? Belshazzar means may bell. That was a, that was a wicked king. That was a wicked god. So every time now Daniel hears his name, Belshazzar, he's beginning to get confused about who is the true god. Is it Murdoch? The God that we're call, you're calling me? Or, or is my name really Daniel? Is it really God is my judge? He calls Hananiah Shadrach, which means the command of another God, the moon God, the head God. Now all of a sudden, he's hearing this other God every time his name is called. Michelle means this. Meshach means the same exact thing except you're replacing God with Aku, which is another form of, a, of the God of Murdoch, their other chief God. And the last one is Abednego, a servant of Nebo, the Babylonian God of wisdom. So now all of a sudden, 16 years of age, these boys begin to hear their names called a different way. And I don't know about you, I don't know if you've ever been somewhere and your name has been changed, the confusion that sets in. I, I was in the second grade and this happened to me. My name literally got changed in one day. So I was adopted when I was in uh, the second grade on uh, February the 14th. So February the 14th, the papers come down from the, Lord, from the judge and all of a sudden I wasn't in the courtroom but my parents take me to school and I get to the front desk and they say to my mom, hey, what's his name? Because we were changing schools. What's his name? And my whole life up until this point, my name was TJ. I hate the name, don't ever call it, but that's what I was called, Todd Jr. My whole life up until the second grade, Todd Jr. I was named after my dad. And all of a sudden I was adopted. And my name was no longer Todd Junior Donaldson, but now it was Todd Wormers. And I went from the front of the class because it was a D, I went to the back of the class all in one moment. I thought, well, my name was worse off already. Now it's really bad. And all of a sudden, I remember sitting in class and they would call my name and I didn't even know they were calling my name because I'd never been called that before. Right? And all of a sudden, they, they, no one's calling me TJ anymore. They're calling me Todd. And it took me a long time to even learn how to write my own name because I'd written my name the same way for so long. And then all of a sudden, at 16 years of age, you know the story, I met my real dad for the first time, and they thought it'd be cute to call me TJ again. And so all of a sudden, I'm, I'm back at my biological dad's house with that family, and they're calling me TJ, and I have no idea who they're talking to. You see, confusion. How more confusing for these four men because man knows if we can change the mind of a person, we can change how they think and behave. So that's what King Nebuchadnezzar is doing. Let's change their mind. So we change their mind. We can 
change their behavior, if we change their mind of who God is and who they worship, then maybe they'll stay here and worship our God. Here's what one writer says about this. A.W. Tozer, one of the finest theologians, uh, wrote a, an amazing book. And at the very beginning of this book, this book is about 26 small chapters about who God is. Every chapter is another characteristic of who God is. And this is how he starts his book. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. You see, King Nebuchadnezzar knew that. And so he changed their names to create confusion. But yet we see this young man, 16 years old. The, sec- the third point is this. He stood firm. Right, so his name is changed in verses 6 and 7. And then verse 8, it says this. Circle this in your Bible. But. But is, gonna, is referring right back to his name being changed. But what does it say? But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. And my question to you and for myself is this. Have I resolved not to defile myself against man's purposes? The 16-year-old young man did, and his friends did likewise. What does it say? The first one is this. The first point in standing firm is we must have a a decisiveness about us. Are you decisive in your decision-making? Or do you wobble to and fro? Are you like a bow in the ocean that has no rudder, that has no mass, and you just, man, wherever it takes you, you get taken? You see, that was not true for Daniel. He stood firm for who God was and what he believed to be true about God, the, the God that he loved, the God that he served, the God that we, he, he worshipped. He resolved in his heart that he would not defile himself. How was he not going to defile himself? with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. You see, the food and the wine that he drank had been presented to the gods that he was named after. And so Daniel said, there's no way I'm going to eat this great food because this great food really isn't for me. It's for your gods. And there's no way I'm taking this food that you worship with to your gods and defile myself with it. Is that true for you? Is that true for me in our context today? Have we become decisive decision makers on what's true about what God is and who God is and what he stands for? Or do we say, that's ah, not that bad. That won't hurt us too bad. That won't be too big of a deal. You see, it goes back to the previous. You see, man wants us to always compromise. And then we begin to compromise. But Daniel never compromised. He made a decision and he stood firm in it. The next thing we see is this. That Daniel had a a deep modesty about him. We see that in verse 12. He goes and he says to the king, we'll read the rest of it. Therefore he asked the chief eunuch to allow him not to defile himself and what God gave Daniel. Again, it goes back to God's sovereignty. Underline that in your Bible. We'll see that throughout this, this book. God gave God gave Daniel the favor in that room. Daniel didn't give it to himself. God gave him the favor. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief eunuch. So they have this discussion in verse 
12, it says this. Daniel says to the chief eunuch, hey, test me. Another version says this. Your version may see, see this. Please test us. He doesn't demand it. He doesn't command it. He modestly asks for it. Hey, give me a shot. Give me a shot to show you who my God is. He's modest about it. And then the last one is this. When we stand firm, we must be decisive. We must be humble. We must be modest. And the third one is this. We must have expectations. Right? You see, Daniel went to the chief king, uh, the, the, the king, uh, a chief eunuch, and said this, hey, please give me a shot. But he went to that person with an expectation that God was going to do something. He knew God would do something. I wonder how often, because of this last point, we don't have God-sized expectations. What if in that moment, Daniel had been indecisive and unmodest and didn't have the, the, the expectation that God was going to do something? And yet he says, hey, just give us a shot. Test us. Test your servant for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then let our appearance and the appearance of the youth who eat the king's table be observed and deal with your servants according to what you see. Because I know God's going to do something. Pastor Chapel, do we have that expectation with our church that God's going to do something? What's our expectation? Here's what one writer said about the great, uh, uh, the great preacher, Victorian preacher in London, Spurgeon. Spurgeon said this way, on one occasion, a young preacher was lamenting to him about how few people seemed to be converted under his preaching. I've never done that before. I have, that was a joke. And Spurgeon said, what? You don't expect people to be converted every time you preach, do you? Taken back that he might have appeared to be presumptuous to the great Spurgeon, the young preacher replied, no, of course not. To which Spurgeon replied, perhaps then, that is the very reason you have seen few converts. Meaning, if you don't have great expectations, you'll never meet great expectations. You see, if we set the bar low, we'll always be able to achieve the bar on our own. But we set the bar high. We set God-sized expectations. Then when we, then those things happen, it can't come back on us. We've got to look back to God. That's what Daniel was doing. Hey, God's going to do something in 10 days. Just let me show you how big my God is. When's the last time that we've said that to anybody? When's the last time we've said that to ourselves? So we must stand firm. And the last one is this. God honors us when we stand firm. The rest of the passage, I, I won't read it all. But basically what happens, you know what happens. These four, uh, the four youth, again it says, God gave them learning and skill and literature and wisdom. And Daniel understood all the visions and dreams. He, he, he granted to them. God did it. And yet God grants their faithfulness back to God. When he talks about all the ways that these 
four men now approach after three years of being in this position. They approach the king. The king sees them, and the king puts them in places. You'll, we'll see this in the, in the text coming up. He puts them over places because of what God did for them. But it was their faithfulness to God that God rewarded. They never compromised. They had huge God-sized expectations. And God rewarded them. It says all the way at the end, verse 19, and the king spoke to them, and among all of them, none was found. He spoke to every kid that had come into his kingdom. Remember, it wasn't just these four young men. It was, it was a bunch of young men that, that the king had brought into his palace to educate, to indoctrinate, to bring into his system. And yet it says this, that none were found like these four men. God is faithful God's people and God is faithful to those that are faithful to them to him and among them all none was found like Daniel Hananiah Michelle Nazira therefore they stood before the king and in every manner of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them he found them what ten times better than all of his own people the magicians the enchanters that were in his kingdom. And, and Daniel was there to the end of his life, about 80 years, scholars tell us. And we see throughout the life of Daniel the faithfulness of God. And so in closing, do you and I see man's purposes? Or are we able to really see God's purpose in all of it? God is sovereign in control of all things. You see, man is going to want to brainwash us. So watch out for isolation. Watch out for indoctrination. Watch out for compromise. Watch out for confusion. Because when those four things happen to us, it's going to pull us away from the truths of God. And if we're pulled away from the truths of God, then we'll forget who God is. When we're pulled away from who God is, we'll rely on ourselves. Which will take us back to, we won't be able to stand firm. You see, the reason that Daniel was able to stand firm because he didn't give in to the purposes of man, but he stood firm into the purposes of God, that he understood that God had a purpose and a plan for his life. And this is how we'll end with a promise from Isaiah chapter 43. This is what Isaiah says is going to happen to these people. But now, thus says the Lord, He created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have what redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And though the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. And the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt as your ransom Cush and Sheba in exchange for you. I am your God. Do we believe that this morning, Bow's Chapel? Do we still believe in the faithfulness to God, to God's people? Do we still believe in the sovereignty of God? God has us, Pow's Chapel, right where he wants us. Amen. Today is a great day. And yes, we're sad that John is leaving but God knew about this way before Ch Powell's Chapel ever decided to be Powell's Chapel. 
And God knew where God was going to bring his people. And God knew that, uh, that today that John would leave and we'd have sadness. But God knew what God was going to do with his people. I believe what John said. The best days are yet ahead of us. The best is yet to come. If we believe in the faithfulness of God. If we hold God and we have great expectations. I ask you, Palace Chapel, let's raise the bar. Let's raise the bar and see what God will do. Let's stop being uh, cows that are the goofiest animals that, 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 that jump. I'll say it that way. Have you ever seen a cow jump? It looks ridiculous. Let's stop being cows that jump over small hurdles. Let's be men and women of God that hold God to huge expectations. The best is yet to come. Let us pray. God, you are a great God. You are a good God. You are a faithful God. You have redeemed us. You have called us by your own name, and we are yours. You are sovereign in control over all things. So God, I, I give you this place. Have your way here at Powell's Chapel. Have your way with the people of Powell's Chapel. May we always honor and glorify you and you alone. God, I pray that you would look down upon us and give us great favor. You are a good God. You are a sovereign God. I pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.